that live. I think we're live. Are we live? Live. Here we are. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, today. <laughs> Welcome to the Chariot TechCast. As I move my mic around, we've uh, you can tell we're running a little bit late today. I was a little bit behind the eight ball, lots of meetings. Uh, but welcome to the Cherry TechCast for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia, the echo-free version. <laughs> yeah, I had to plug in a, a studio mixer and then make it all work. Uh, and then I had the chat window open in two browsers at the same time. So we're like, what's all this echo coming from? We're just doing QA on, on you know, StreamYard. So I'm learning how to do it for the first time. Uh, okay, so hey, everybody. Uh, welcome. It's been a little while, um, and we're glad you're here. Um, make sure that if you're watching this for the first time, you subscribe and, you know, click the little notification button since it's on YouTube and you can be notified when the next show comes up. Uh, and we are, you know, chariot solutions. We do consulting in technology and we talk a lot about what we do and what we're interested in. So our tech chat is really kind of a version of that. <clears throat> Before we get started, just pointing out on our website, we have a, a blog, uh, it's over in resources here, blog, and you've got other things as well, podcasts and such like you're listening to now. But if you go to the blog, we have one new article that I wanted to point out. Ally Cavella, uh, one of our consultants here, uh, has been working on IoT for a number of years, um, Internet of Things devices. Um, and he has a <clears throat> Maker Wi-Fi 1010 board uh, and an environment shield and a starter project for it if you want to mess around with IoT. Uh, so in this article, he kind of talks through, uh, you know, why uh, people are starting to use modern microcontrollers in the last decade, as opposed to older tools and, you know, platforms like BACnet and other things as well, ladder and PLCs. Um, so um, he kind of sets up the, the reasons for it. And then he mentions what the Maker Wi-Fi kit uh, that he's putting together uh, that you would follow along with would have, such as like built-in Wi-Fi support, a crypto chip, digital IO, analog input and output. Uh, and then he has a uh, actual uh, GitHub repo that you can take a look at, um, which is here. Let me open that up. So there you go. So if you want to play around with IoT, get started. You know, he's, he knows a heck of a lot about this stuff, so he's kind of laid out nicely some of the things you would do to, to set it up and deploy code to it and get information from sensors and communicate with the outside world. For, uh, for listeners out there, if anybody's in building automation, home control type stuff, we have quite a bit of experience in those spaces. And a lot of the equipment is expensive, especially with building automation control. And one of the things this blog post talks about is there's commodity hardware out there, Raspberry Pi, et cetera, that's a lot cheaper and with modern protocols can potentially control this equipment at a much lower initial installation cost, hardware cost. So um, if you're interested in those kind of solutions, definitely reach out to us. For sure. Um, and also just to point out um, our YouTube channel, if you want to check out all the stuff we talk about, all the speakers we host in our various conferences, um, it's, well, we've been around 21 years now, I forget, but uh, in our 21st year, I believe. And uh, we've been doing this for a long time. So if you look at our playlist, if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, it'll take you to our main page and you can hit the playlists. Um, we have a show coming out called Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise or Philly ETE for short. It's coming up uh, in April 11th and 12th, I believe is the date. If I'm right about that, let me know Becca if I'm not because um, it's off the top of my head. But uh, I'll go to the website, too. And uh, it's a really, really good show. We've got a lot of really good speakers. If you're curious about what it is like, you can check out any of the years themselves or go to our super playlist. 
or even go to like the IoT Fusion one. We just talked about Al's work with the IoT boards and Maker Wi-Fi. There's a great seminar we did with a, a number of different speakers on IoT back in 2018, which would be a good refresher for if you're curious. Uh, so lots of lots of resources for you there for free. We don't make you register. Just go ahead and take what you need and remember us. And right. It is the 11th and 12th, just by the way. Thank you. I was hoping so. <laughs> There we go. Uh, since I'm one of the committee members, that was from from Hart. And I'm like, yeah, I should have just opened up the browser. Here's the website, phillyemergingtech.com. We are uh, still in early bird for another week or two. Um, so you can save, I think it's 100 bucks, but uh, reasonable price. I think Becca put that in the, in the list here. Hold on a second here. Yeah, so the early bird pricing is $425. Uh, and that ends on March 15th. The regular price is going to go up 100 bucks, so 525 Now, this is for an in-person conference, and the seats are limited right now. So they're selling fast. If you want to be in person for the conference, you want to get your tickets soon. Again, phillyemergingtech.com. And it's going to be down in um, the, uh, what is it, the Science Center? Is that what it is? Yes. Yes, thank you. At the University City Science Center. Uh, we have about 150 employee, uh, 150 uh, people max capacity, but we're also doing what we did for the last couple of years during the pandemic. We are also streaming. So if you can't get out downtown that day uh, for those two days, um, you can certainly just get a streaming ticket. And the streaming tickets are cheaper. Um, they're like 150. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'd be a good idea uh, if you can help it. Uh, to go ahead and come in in person because it's really worth it to get that communication with other people. And, and you'll get to meet me and Ken in person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, with him, definitely. With me, I'm not so sure. Um, Is that counterproductive? Does that mean people are not going to sign? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll both be there. And, uh, you know, it'll be a really good time. We've had it for uh, 15 years of it or whatever. We did it in person and yeah. COVID put a wrench in it. But we figured at least for this year, we'll start going back into in person um, and we found a venue that could do that um, and also could do the live streaming at the same time, which is great. Plus, their internet connections there are fantastic. So if you're there on site and you need to, to take a look at something, your internet connection will be nice and fast. So that'll be good, too. All right. And it's two tracks uh, for two days. So two different speakers uh, at the same time for two days. And we've got some pretty amazing ones. Um, one of the newest ones is our first keynote that we have picked up. Uh, and... Katie Kwan, I think is her name. Uh, she's a choreographer. She's a dancer and a roboticist. And she's a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at Stanford University. Uh, and and the art, inaugural artist and resident everyday robots, which is a really cool organization. Um, so what she's doing is she's taking uh, robots and using imitation learning to teach them by doing in front of them new tasks in human-friendly environments. And she's going to talk about teaching robots how to dance which is really a cool concept. So that's our first keynote that we've booked. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. There's an example. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see what she comes up with for that talk. We were really looking forward to that one. We also have, of course, we're looking forward to all of them. We, we have uh, Deshaun Carter from Spring Developer. At, he's a Spring Developer advocate. He's going to talk about uh, multi-cloud platforms. We have um, Stephen Augustus. Uh, of the open source Cisco uh, group, uh, governing board of the Open Source Security Foundation. Uh, he's going to give us a talk on analyzing software health with Open SSF scorecard. Uh, so if you're looking at like open source stuff and you're you're wrestling with licenses and things like that, I'm 
uh, and like projects, he can certainly give you a good leg up on some of this stuff. Um, so, John, the ones that you uh, want to highlight, we have Drew DeCarm, uh, our own Drew DeCarm. Is well, a- I was mainly gonna gonna mention uh, Drew DeCarm is gonna be talking about basically, and we're gonna be talking about progressive web apps later, but um, building progressive web apps that can use a camera on the phone, um, in this case for QR barcode scanning, completely written in JavaScript, no native code at all. Um, and you know, I know what he's going to be talking about and what he did. So I think it's going to be an awesome talk. We have Yehuda Katz is coming back. He, he, he's been here a number of years. He's going to be talking about, uh, his latest creation called Starbeam JS. Uh, and so we'll, we'll check in with him. We've got Jessica Kerr coming back. Um, uh, talk from uh, Jess Mink as well from Honeycomb. So just a lot of really good stuff here. Uh, Martin Snyder, local legend, uh, Java user group lead, and certainly longtime committee member and speaker on uh, Philly Emerging Tech. Uh, and he's going to be talking about Shape Up, uh, which is, I'm not sure, I think some sort of uh, like uh, process, Shape Up uh, development process. So we'll find out what that is. Yeah, the Jessica Care talk I'm, I'm interested in it's about open telemetry, uh, right? Is you know ab- around observability, logging, monitoring, and you know I think it's something more and more developers should have baseline exposure to. Should be part of your skill set whenever you're putting putting a new app, Microsoft, whatever, d- deploying that out there. You should understand um, what ops people have to go through. <laughs> so, yeah. So you should you should understand that that side of the world as well. So um, hopefully. She talks about that angle too. And then there's a, I'm sorry, I forget the person's name, but they're from um, Hackaderm, um, Mastodon. They're going to be talking as well about scaling up Mastodon. Hazel Weekly. Yeah. Hazel mm-hmm. Weekly. Thank you. Um, yep. Really looking forward to that talk too. Yeah. Just so people are aware, um, Pachyderm is an, a Mastodon instance. It's a Mastodon server platform. So you can go and, and join the Pachyderm Mastodon instance. Um, and they're running that themselves. Uh, out of servers they put together in, in rack mount uh, and things they're they're working through to scale it up. So they're running into all the challenges you run into with scaling up software, uh, especially because the the actual um, the actual uh, let's see uh, what's it called again. I already forget what's the name of the project again. I'm having a moment here. Hackerderm is a Mastodon, right? Thank you. The Mastodon platform isn't necessarily written. Uh, to be massively scaled. So they talk about that actually in some of the things they write about. So they address that with various strategies. So it'll be really interesting to see what they were doing when they wrestle with it, what they do to, I don't know if they patch it or if they just figured out ways to scale and cash and do whatever they do to, to, to make it uh, perform really well for them. So there's an interesting podcast off the find and drop in here um, where they interviewed uh, this team about some of the issues they ran into with it early on. So that would probably be a good thing to kind of point out uh, and make note of. I'll look for that link. Just give you a little more background. All right, cool. So that's, uh, you know, Philly Emerging Tech. It's going to be a really good show. Again, we'll, be, we'll both be there. I uh, hope to see you there if you can come. Yes. All right, so let's do a little bit of news. Uh, the first one is, um, and I'm just going to briefly show the InfoWorld article, but I'm going to talk more about it than anything else, is Project Valhalla. So Project Valhalla is one of the JDK uh, JAPs, I guess it is, or a series of Java improvement process uh, proposals uh, that go through uh, under the, the guise of a single project called Project Valhalla. Uh, and so it's a big Java language internals overhaul. And the biggest thing that's coming out of that um, cur- currently that they're working through is uh, value classes and value objects. 
Awesome. Now they reference, and I'll put these in the, in the, the uh, links. The, uh, the, the article is written by Matthew Tyson at InfoWorld, and it's a good kind of overview, so we'll link to that. But he also points to three of the kind of state of Valhalla uh, guides that Brian gets, who is the Java tech lead uh, architect um, out there at Oracle, uh, had put out kind of saying where they were with uh, Valhalla. There's a lot of details in here. But one of the things that Valhalla is trying to do is kind of go back at the way that they separate out primitives versus classes. And for a while, the Java mantra was everything's an object, right? We'll make it look like an object um, if it's not for like boxing and unboxing. And otherwise, everything's an object wherever we can make it an object because everything's based on classes and classes are what objects are created from instances of classes. Um, and part of the problem with that is when you're dealing with lots of data and data structures, um, the way that Java stores that data is not efficient for packing it in memory and quickly pulling through it uh, and processing it and scaling that kind of processing. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to make uh, the ability to create a value class, for example. So you define a class, and normally classes have identity. You can say, you know, dot equals, and you can all say equals equals, um, and you know, with, with a class, the equals equals is the reference and the dot equals is the identity of it, right? What the fields are that make it equivalent or equal. Um, and what they're doing with these uh, value classes is they're saying, if you mark a class as a value class, you can use class semantics to group a, a, a collection of things together, but we'll throw away the concept of identity. So it's not like you'll have multiple you know, instances you can compare to each other. And it's just a value you can pass around. And what that's going to do is it's going to kind of solve the weird problems we have with, with boxing. Like everything gets converted in and out. And, you know, whenever you convert from an integer to an int, you lose the identity and then so you convert it back and it's a new identity. They don't do, you know, equals equals, right. Um, they're saying, you know what, all that stuff and the fact we can't pack it in memory really well, uh, we're going to give you the option of making just a pure value class. You can make instances of and pass things by value, even though the shape is a class shape. Right. And what's nice is, like you said, memory efficiency, not recreating instances of the same value class. Like you could share them immutably throughout your code or re reference them immutably. So it could be immutable. And being a value class, it should be easier to do switch expressions off of and, and write conditional logic on that. So, I mean, there's a lot of good things. Immutability, switching, um, avoiding boxing, unboxing. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Yeah, and so visually, for example, here's how you would have an array um, that has an array of XY point objects with current JDK would look something like this, right? you got the array header, and then each of the elements goes the header of the object for each array element, and so on and so on and so forth. And that is a great way of looking at things if you're object-driven, but if you really want to pack that thing in, you'd rather have something like this, right? So the goal is to get the memory structure for a value class that's an array of point values to look like that. So it's really right. fast to go through, stay, st saves a lot of memory. And, you know, when things are physically located close to each other, remember, they can be fetched together as a batch. So it's, it's, it's even more efficient for dealing with them. Yeah. So I also wonder, I, I need to read through this. I wonder if, if they're immutable, like you can take it out, you can inline it. The compiler can inline it in yep. the code for more efficient execution as well. Yep, that's that's the goal. That's one of the big goals. Okay. So this is really good stuff. And just so you know, I did uh, do some uh, looking around. There are early access builds if you want to hack around with this. 
that came out in uh, looks like November of 2022. So if you wanted to like download a JDK and experiment with the language and the features with this and maybe benchmark some stuff you want to try out that way, you can get a feel for where it's headed. So awesome. kind of cool. And that's an open JDK uh, build. All right. Another thing uh, you should be aware of, uh, the React team has recently upgraded their docs. Um, their docs were pretty good to begin with, actually. Um, but now what's interesting is this one, they have sample code, uh, visual diagrams, interactive examples. There's challenges and solutions. Um, so, for example, like they have a tic-tac-toe tutorial, right? So you got like a, an actual game here, and you can look at the this tool of the game. You could download the code. You can... I guess, what are they using here? If I click for Code Sandbox. Cool. They're using, excuse me, Code Sandbox so you can fork it and play around with it. And then you can certainly download your Sandbox and, and you know, mess around with it locally or just download their version that they had up on the tutorial right here as a zip file to play with. So all these things you can do, um, nice notes, nice overviews. It's really good, especially if you're just learning React. You have a really nice way of interacting with the documentation now. Um, and, uh, so that's beta.reactjs.org. Just a shameless plug and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we're likely in the near future to have content produced by someone at Chariot, um, around React Native using the tic-tac-toe tutorial example and building a React Native version of that. So, um, looking good. Forward, and then when that's out, we'll, we'll definitely mention it to our listeners. I'm looking forward to that. That's great. Okay, cool. All right. Here's another one I thought, and I, I haven't spent much time with this, but uh, Sandpack. So Code Sandbox actually uh, has some sort of like uh, runtime that they use to, to kick this stuff off. Um, and if you ever play with Code Sandbox, just for a second, I'll go back to it. It's one of these. There's a, a bunch of like uh, Stack Blitz and other ones out there too. Where is it? Uh, here. So if you notice, like it's kind of hard to see here, but... Uh, there's dependencies, right? Those are Node.js dependencies in a build system, right? So how the heck do they do that? Well, I believe what they're getting at here is that the runtime they're using to do this, they've now open sourced that and made that available. So it's a Node.js runtime in the browser. So you can run like Node.js processes. When you say in the browser, literally running in the browser, not in some cloud VPS somewhere as a container somewhere Correct. else? Correct. Because it says one year ago, we introduced Sandpack. This is 2.0. So apparently this has been around. Uh, an open source in-browser bundle that allows you to run live running code on your website. So they basically open source the tools they're using to get this done. Okay. Um, and now there's a there's a version 2.0 of it. Um, and uh, let's see here. Right. And so I haven't spent much time with this, obviously. I just looked at this, but this is kind of cool. Um Right. Uh, no matter if your app depends on server or client runtime execution in Sandpack, it should work for you. This was the key objectives we worked for in version two. Now they have something called Nodebox, which is technology that implements its very own abstraction of Node.js that runs in the browser itself. So you can run almost any JavaScript application you can imagine in the browser. But it's still sandboxed? It must be. I mean, I, I, they must have like a sandbox with virtual file system and things like exactly. that built into it. But that's really cool yeah. if you're trying to like experiment with Node APIs. Um, so yeah, here you go. Like, uh, some samples here. Yeah. I wonder if this is similar to, I mean, it's a, like almost like a sandbox version of Electron in the sense that you're basically Chromium. Oh yeah. You can kick off processes as running node. Mm -hmm. 
and they have docs for this too. So again, I've spent like three minutes on it and went, you know what? This is something definitely to look at. Yeah. Um, because I really like Code Sandbox. I, I've used that and Stack Blitz. Code Sandbox is great for like quickly kicking off samples and then sharing them. It's great for training. It's great for experimenting. If you want to create a view or, or you know, uh, you know, view TypeScript or Angular TypeScript or whatever uh, thing you can think up, you can do it from Code yeah. Sandbox. And I believe them in starting to put like server level stuff like Node apps on there. So I think that's where that comes from. But it's a really cool concept. So uh, check it out. See what you think. It's really cool. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna look. I, I'm. I assume that you can communicate with the node process from the web page somehow or through the you know through JavaScript running yeah. on the web page. You must be able to. Uh, yeah. I was thinking, is that like is using node a node a cleaner way to do like web sockets and message processing and take that code away from from your front end app? Somewhere? I would wonder how you physically. And this is what I'd have to find out. I wonder how you physically deploy that in a product you're going to distribute. You know what the licensing is and. Yeah. All that stuff. Definitely worth researching. Nice. Definitely worth researching. Um, I also flagged this too. January 11th, there was another JavaScript survey out there. Um, someone did. And they have a couple things they noticed interest in from the people they surveyed. So, for example, Electron, right, is the current, you know, everyone's doing like Electron for JavaScript front end desktop apps. So, if you're even like IntelliJ and Visual, well, Visual Studio Code for sure is written using um, Electron as the shell for it and a lot of other tools out there that look like basic desktop apps. But in, in reality, they're desktop apps with a GUI shell over them that run in JavaScript. So they run a Node.js process for like backend processing and they run a browser, you know, uh, like without all the Chrome around it uh, for the front end. So that's Electron. So it turns out that one of the things they found is there's new, de new development projects that are looking at another platform for that called Tari. Um, and also another thing is like Webpack, which everyone's been using forever to assemble single page applications and built apps. Um, it seems like people are really switching over to Vite. Part of that is because a lot of the tools uh, are switching over to Vite. Like, so for example, Vite has a creative React app and a Vue app and all sorts of other things. And it's, it's a really nice platform to work with uh, as, as like a build platform, as opposed to using like just a base Webpack based build. Um, so anyway, so there's some, let's see in here. Uh, so for example, um, here's one query. How much do you do JavaScript versus TypeScript? All right. So in this survey group of people, uh, there is about 8% of people doing hundred percent JavaScript. They'll never die. Never going to do any TypeScript at all. Forget types. Uh, and then only a few people are doing in that survey 50, 50, which is kind of interesting. And a, a large majority of people here seem to be moving more towards TypeScript. Um, so, and in fact, 25% don't answer, but 20% say they are fully doing TypeScript. So it seems like it's been pushed more towards TypeScript. I don't know what the, like the uh, earlier versions of this is, but it certainly seems to track. I know when I look at a project, they try to make sure I do it in TypeScript just because I, I don't have to write as many tests to know that I got the types wrong, you know? So that's one. Uh, keep going up. That's great to like, you know, if, if you're a developer needing to convince your team or management, you know, that TypeScript is the way to go. Um, I think this is pretty relevant to say, you know, how much of, of what's being built out there now is using TypeScript. So just from a maintainability, hiring folks, cross-training perspective, makes a lot of sense to, to start using TypeScript if you're not. If you're building a large application in pure JavaScript, um, I highly recommend you don't do that. 
<laughs> yeah. And I think TypeScript 5 just came out. There's a lot of nice enhancements to it as well. So uh, definitely it's been, it's been very active as a project and it's not going anywhere anytime soon for sure. Uh, another one is Vite. Uh, so V-I-T-E, Vite as a build tool. Uh, so apparently 98.4% of people using it in this survey stuck with it. Uh, 81% of people that were surveyed were interested and about 50% were using it on a regular basis. Uh, keep in mind though, Webpack still has 84.8% in usage because once you start on a project and you lay it out with something, it's going to stay there. Um, picking it up and moving from a Webpack based build over to V is a significant lift. So you probably won't see tons of people moving from one to the other once their project is established, but new projects, since there's so many nice starters with V are probably going to end up using V uh, in general for things like React and Vue. Okay. Uh, let's see. Node.js and Deno. Apparently there's one called Bun now too, which I wasn't aware of. What's, uh, what's that? I said, of course, there's a new thing. Always. It's JavaScript, right? You know, I'm going to make one called Burger. So Burger and Bun, they can fight it out. Um, hot dog. One, I'm going to make one called Falafel. There we go. Um, so Node.js uses as much the same as last year, around 71%. But Deno, which is the Node runtime replacement that was created by the person who created Node in the first place, has grown from 5.6% to 8.5%. So it's starting to gain a little more uptick out there. Um, and so that's interesting. Of course, it's still not as popular as Node, but it's, it's starting to make a little bit of inroads there. Um, let's see. <laughs> Here we go. Ask for opinions on the state of JavaScript. Around 40% consider that building JavaScript apps is too complex. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> Every time I go and build one, I'm like, how am I going to do it this time? Why is this, this tool broken? Why is there a new one? 55% uh, would, I would say 45% say the ecosystem is changing too fast. I agree with that too. Things are moving too quick all the time. Um, over 55% would like to see static typing in the language, which I don't think is ever going to happen with a TC39 committee. I really doubt they're going to approve that. Um, but, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, and then the next biggest ask is for a standard library, which, yeah, they have standard, a browser. Standard. <laughs> Good luck with that, with all the browsers out there and then Node. and So, um, I mean, Node has its own libraries built into it, but like standard JavaScript, like, S, you know, like a C standard library doesn't exist. That's true. Right. Uh, biggest pain point is now code architecture defines organizing and maintaining your code base. That makes sense. Whereas last year, managing dependencies was in the top spot. Like, flip a coin. <laughs> I don't know, oh yeah it, it changed from that to that in one year i mean they both have been issues for a long time so yeah exactly you could say that for anything it's not really just javascript mm -hmm. didn't we say it was really complex but then they said the web stack is relatively well liked 75 percent of devs yeah. feels that javascript is moving in the right direction and 58 percent are happy or very happy with general state of web technologies given the developers are a tough crowd to please that's a good result for the ecosystem says who's the author of this tim anderson and let me see where this survey came from. State of JS, 2022, that's State of JS. So I guess you can really kind of dig into this. Um, oh, they even have a data explorer. That's very cool. So check it out, 2022.stateofjs.com. That's where that came from. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You have one in here, uh, web push for web apps on iOS and iPadOS. That was just released, right? Yeah, and I was going to, I guess we can talk about it now. I was going to mention that during the, the discussion of PWA. Oh, okay. From my, that's okay. Mm -hmm. it'll, well, make, it'll make more sense after I talk about, define some of these terms and what they mean. So let's put a pin in this. And do you, do you want to share your screen or you just want to talk? Like, how do you want to do it? 
I'm just going to talk so folks will have to suffer through listening to me um, extemporaneously without any websites or, or links. All right. That's good. Go for it. Okay. So you're, you're done with your links. Awesome. Yeah. I'm done. Cool. So, um, you know, we, we talk to a lot of prospects and, and work with a lot of clients and a common theme or common couple themes are, you know, some companies um, based off of budgetary constraints or resource constraints, you know, they're, they're looking to maximize usage of one technology for consolidating training, knowledge, hiring skill sets. Um, and they have requirements to run on the desktop, run on a tablet or a phone, you know, multiple form factors. So they're eager to hear about technologies that are cross-cutting that can, you can write and deploy software um, to many different places. Kind of like back in the day, you know, Java, write once, run anywhere. So they want to write once, run anywhere sort of paradigm. That's never going to go away. That's always going to be a thing that um, companies want. And it, it, it's, it's a valid thing to want. When you think about computers, you're like, okay, something renders graphics to the screen that a human interprets and humans generate input that a computer processes. Well, that just describes pretty much every device out there that has a screen on it. So it's, it's kind of natural to want to think that you can write something that can do those things across various form factors. Um, so I'm going to take a folks on a little bit of a journey, right? So like, you know, back in the day where I came from in terms of Java, that technology was called swing. Um, swing had a windowing toolkit that abstracted out the, the mechanics and the things that are necessary for building together windows and widgets and buttons. And then the underlying rendering of that was dependent on a platform specific implementation of Swing AWT um, that at the time Sun and the team behind that would be responsible for building and maintaining. So you could write a Swing app ostensibly and have that run on Windows, have that run on Linux, um, have that run on macOS, for example. And you get varying levels of different look and feel. And um, you could have something that looked and felt the same across any of those platforms. And I have to say, it, while um, there were challenges in building Swing apps, it did work. Um, and it does work. And um, you know, built quite a, quite a few successful Swing apps within you know, the, the company that I was working for at the time. And you could literally take a jar and you could run it on multiple systems um, with very little um, issues. You know, there are some platform specific things you may need to take to account for and write certain logic for in your code. But by and large, it worked. Um, later on, I worked at a place where this was before smartphones. Let's say smartphones came out around, you know, 2007, the iPhone. Well, before that, there was a technology called WAP and WML, if you remember, Ken. So <coughs> wireless application yep. protocol and wireless markup language. So at the time, I was basically building JSPs served by Tomcat, um, but the JSPs, instead of rendering HTML and CSS, um, they were rendering WML, wireless markup language. Um, that was basically like the paradigm or the, the metaphor there were cards. So cards had some text, um, had you know previous and next links, had some sort of navigation capability and hyperlinking to other cards. So you had a stack of cards that you could go back and be doing. So you could write apps for the non-smartphone stuff back in the day, again, you know, you had a screen that could render something and you had something to capture input. Um, then from that point, you know, the, it, things exploded once you had smartphones and browsers became really powerful and you had tablets. And now you have like a dizzying array of a number of things, which I'll kind of, you know, go over briefly at a high level. You know, you had websites that um, in the beginning only rendered on a desktop. Um, 
you know, you can request a desktop version on your mobile phone. And if you're good at reading microfiche by the naked eye, <laughs> have at it. That is a valid way to consume certain websites still that don't have mobile responsive versions. I'll define what that means later. Um, but your phone can render a website, even a desktop version with the same primitives. You can process the DOM, et cetera, and CSS the same way. It's just going to be really hard to read unless you have like a gigantic foldable, you know, meg mega sized phone that's almost like a tablet. Um, and even then it's going to be a little bit uh, cumbersome to do that, but it does work. Um, you have, you can take that kind of a little bit further and say, okay, you have a website that renders, um, but you can scale a website to the viewport of a device. So a viewport meaning the, the bounds or the dimension of your, of your phone, your tablet, um, your browser, which is essentially like you can say in, in, in pixels or DPI, for example, uh, if you can scale a website to a viewport, what that does, it, it tells the underlying rendering how to render things for that scale with you know fonts, et cetera. So your text can become a lot easier to read on a phone. It's not gonna be like really tiny like this. It's gonna be a lot bigger um, size to the phone. Um, what it doesn't do is take care of layout. So it can still be a pain to navigate, scroll around, um, get to the elements you need to because we're just talking about scaling the website up, not really doing anything else with it. But again, that's a lot better than not having something uh, designed for that viewport size. Um, you can even take that a little bit further and say, okay, now the website renders is scaled to the viewport size of the device. And now I'm using something called CSS media queries to actually determine based off of some parameters like the dimension of the viewport, um, I wanna change the size of my element. I wanna determine which size image to use or I want to change the layout of something from like being horizontally laid out to being vertically laid out. Um, you get to this point where you're taking into account a viewport and your elements and CSS are taking into account the size of something, you're getting to be more responsive now where you can have something on a website. And I didn't have time to prepare examples to show and screen share. Sorry about that. Well, we can always follow up later. Um, we're going to have more deeper dives into these topics in subsequent podcasts. But um, now you can have something laid out much better for the phone. So instead of a horizontal um, set of list items or links, I can have them vertically face out. So it's much easier to go vertically on the phone and scroll because that's how it's narrow screen. Um, so now you're kind of at that first step of being more responsive. Uh, so a lot of websites, and if anyone building a website today, um, you know, I don't know the metrics off the top of my head, but most of the surveys and metrics out there, user agent um, data collection stuff shows that a large number of users are logging into websites through their mobile phone for everything now. It's not like for one type of, you know, they're doing it for consuming information, consuming mm -hmm. news, um, doing banking transactions, um, checking email, you know, whatever, whatnot. They're using their phone for a lot of things. So if you're not taking into account mobile responsiveness for your website, several things happen. One, your users are going to complain. They're not going to use your website. Um, search engines will actually... Probably, I think SEO, if, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong, correct me, Ken, I, I think SEO takes that into account as well to the form factor. So your, your website so it may not show up in searches or cetera, if it's not like it's lighthouse metric is not high enough for it to, you know, to go for accessibility purposes. Is that correct? Or, or downranked, like, you know, it yeah. might just be, you know, lower in the list, for example, too. Yeah. Right. Um, so. so so you're doing a disservice to your large user base using mobile phones now. Um, here, you know, within the U.S. domestically and globally, even more so, where for many folks, the only device they can afford is a mobile phone, and that's their internet connection. That's their their entryway into everything they do 
um, on the internet in the World Wide Web. Um, so that should be something that everyone thinks about whenever they're building a website. And there's CSS frameworks to help you out with that. There's a lot of material out there. There's things you don't have to start from scratch. There's design systems like Material UI that can do a lot for you out of the box to make your website responsive. It doesn't take away good UX. You still have to plan and design for good UX and understand what your users do. But there are frameworks to really help you um, not have to start and be a CSS PhD scientist um, to figure all that out from scratch. So highly recommend looking into mobile responsiveness and um, CSS frameworks that, that, that are mobile responsive. Um, you mind if I jump in here for a second oh, too? Please. Yeah. So one of the things you also want to keep in mind is the bundle sizes and the, and the amount of JavaScript you're throwing over the wire, for example. So if you're building applications with a huge you know, JavaScript build files uh, that they're, you, they, you know, shake them down. It's still like two megs, three megs, four megs. Remember those people that are all over the world, a probably aren't that close to the servers. They, they're being downloaded from unless you're using a content delivery network, which we could certainly talk about, but B they might have a really slow or, you know, uh, semi-active internet connection. So I know you're going to talk about uh, PWAs and stuff later, but the point being like, there are ways now that you can start, and there are more modern frameworks like Next.js or Remix or things like that. Uh, you can start developing these front ends that are much less heavy on the browser and take much less stuff on the wire. Yeah. And that's important too. That's a huge point actually, because um, again, like Ken said, there's areas where bandwidth is at a premium or connection is shoddy um, or it's very costly, right? So um, being able to reduce the actual size of data um, being transferred over the network is is really important, especially for that initial load and responsiveness. There's metrics that show that you know if it takes X amount of time for a website to respond to something or load, people are going to move away from it and, and and find something else. So that initial load time and rendering time is huge. And something we'll get into a little bit of the PW is you know caching a lot of your assets and images, et cetera, up front um, initially. Um, so subsequent um, request run a lot faster and subsequent renders of the web page run a lot faster. Um, whether you're online or offline, it's just going to conserve network usage. So that's, that's a big thing. Yeah. Um, and kind of, the, so the next step from taking a mobile responsive web page is like, okay, is there any way I can treat my web page almost like an app? Can I install it on my home screen or can I download it from an app store? Um, can I use it like an app? Can I treat it like an app in my, you know, my task switcher um, thing on my phone? You know, can I, when I'm switching through apps, um, can my web app show up in that list as its own standalone app so I don't have to think differently about it or launch a browser or go back to a tab, you know, go to a browser, then go in a tab in a browser um, that that's, you know, you can save all those steps by just being able to switch to that app. Um, and that's where we kind of get into progressive web apps where, yes, you can, you can take a web app and if you design it a certain way, and I mean, it's a huge topic, so I'm not going to go into in depth here, but you can take a web app and you can define it in a way that uh, a mobile browser and the mobile OS understands that, okay, this app has a name, has an icon, um, has a set of capabilities. Um, it can be installable. It can have a banner logo, things like that. And that's called like the app manifest. But, and mm -hmm. the thing is a progressive web app. So I could take my web app if it has this manifest and um, you can, the browser can read that on that platform and say, oh, this is an installable thing. And then you can actually install the app to the home screen. Um, and, and at which point when I launch my phone, it shows up on the home screen. I don't have to go to Safari or Chrome or the browser that you're using. I can launch it up 
Um, and at that point, um, it looks like an app to you in the sense that it's treated like an app. Um, how you render it, again, depends on what CSS framework you're using, um, how, you, how you've designed your web app. So, you know, you can design it to give it a more native look and feel, or, you know, you can't. So, or you may not do that. But anyway, you're at a point where it's installable. Now, you can go a little bit further and say, okay, well, my app, I can run whether there's a connection or not, for example. It's like, well, how would I do that with a web app? Um, what progressive web apps allow are um, offline usage um, and two things for offline usage. One major thing is caching. If you can't cache something that you've already retrieved, um, it becomes impossible to do offline because every time you go to retrieve that, you have to go to the network, um, whether that's a CDN or a cloud provider or some private server somewhere. You can't make progress on your app without actually having to hit the network. So you can cache a lot of these resources, whether they're web pages, CSS files, scripts, images. Um, there's a browser support for all of these things vary. I should, probably should have put that disclaimer up front. Um, and you can use a website like caniuse.com to tell you what browsers support what versions of what to various degrees. It's a highly detailed website, <clears throat> a great resource to check out. Um, but you can take a thing called a service worker, which basically is something that runs in the background for your web app. It is tied to a, a, a scope, a domain. So you can say I have a service worker for www.blahblahblah.com slash something or just .com at the top level. Um, and that service worker acts as a proxy between your application and the network, which means it opens up a lot of features because now you have a proxy. It can capture a, a fetch request, for example, and say, well, hey, I, I already have these resources that I've stored in a cache. And browsers like Chrome implement a cache API that allow you to store things in named caches, allow you to retrieve things, clear caches, et cetera. So you can store web pages, you can store CSS, JS, et cetera. Um, so now your app can say for these pages that are relatively static, well, let me pre-cache all the static up front right when my app starts up. Um, and then I never really need to hit that stuff again um, because it's not going to change. You can then cache dynamic requests for new pages or JSON, for example, from an API that you're hitting and say, take this data back and cache it. Um, you can cache those objects directly as, as HTML, you know, HTTP responses, or you can use this thing called IndexedDB, which is essentially a object database where you can store JSON objects um, and then retrieve them by key value. So now you can store responses from RESTful APIs, GraphQL, et cetera. And then before going back out, you can check your cache and say, okay, do I already have this? Um, and if you have it, then therefore you can, so, so you can basically, as I'm building this up from a website to something that you can read on a phone, to something that now is formatted well on a phone, to something you can install, to now something where you can store data locally. Um, and then that, that kind of thing keeps going on. And then the next part of that would be um, accessing native features like the camera or the media API or the microphone, things like that. So there's a lot, you know, we can get into here. Um, we'll have subsequent things about it, but it, in this modern day and age, you can build an installable web app on your phone. Um, and there's obviously pros and cons. I'm not going to, I think we can have other, other discussions about what are the pros and cons of each of these? Cause there's, um, that's pretty detailed. And so I'm not making a judgment call on what's right or wrong. Each one um, sure. has different use cases, but it is nice to know that you have these capabilities as a web developer. It allows you to be pretty powerful um, and to address your user base across different devices. Um, so those are PWAs, uh, this thing called hybrid development and cross-platform development. So hybrid development is a case where you're still 
creating a native app, like an APK in Android or you know an iOS bundle. Um, it's native. It's going to get uploaded to the uh, to the appropriate app stores, and you're going to download it like a native app. But what it is is a native shell or wrapper around a web view. So you have this native shell that says, okay, I'm going to let you render your web page pages in a web view that understands JavaScript, HTML, DOM, CSS. But what the native shell does is it exposes native platform specific features and it can communicate with the web view and vice versa. So now um, what you're doing in that case is I think you generally speaking have a lot more access to native features and it's treated much more like a native app um, because it's not any different. You're, you're literally going to an app store, downloading it, running it. What is different is you're bound to the capabilities of that native shell and what it exposes to the native service. Now you can write shims, you can write extensions that are native Swift code, native Kotlin code, et cetera, Objective-C that allow you to extend the, the ability to like have device specific features and you can expose those as functions or properties to your JavaScript. So things like Apache Cordova, Ionic, PhoneGap are examples of um, hybrid applications of, um, I mean, I wish I had a list of examples here of prevalent apps out there, but there are many um, and it can be successfully used. And it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting middle ground between a pure web page and a pure app. Um, so in my mind, I think proto depending on what you want to prototype, any of these things are valid technologies. You know, I think a PWA and a hybrid app may allow you to get up and running faster if what you're prototyping is kind of logic. And like, I, I just want to get an idea of how this is going to work overall and whether it's a viable idea. If you're actually prototyping the UX, I'm not so sure about that. You want to, then you want to actually prototype something that you think is going to be close to what you want your app to be. So if you need access to really snappy animations, fast rendering, um, and you want the latest and greatest that's available on either iOS or Android, and you want a pure native look and feel without even having to think about what native look and feel means, pure native is your best approach. Going hybrid or PWA is not going to solve those use cases without a lot of probably heavy lifting. Um, there may be some frameworks out there that make that easier that I'm not that I haven't you know looked at. Um, so a lot it depends on what your use cases are and what the goals of your MVP or prototype are whenever you're doing technology selection in general. Um, but hybrid can work successfully. Then there's something kind of called I that's called cross-platform, which is a step beyond hybrid. Um, is I want something that purely compiles to my native platform on iOS or Android. So it's not just something that's a shell with a web, web view. It's actually a native app that renders natively, that runs everything natively. Two examples there are React Native and Flutter. So React Native is nice because folks that know React and what I hear from folks that have done both is that it is not a heavy lift going from React to React Native if you're already a React developer. React Native allows you to write React code um, with specific components and styles, et cetera, that, that work well on, nat on, on mobile phones, but it compiles the app to a native app and it renders it natively. Um, you can build extensions that are native extensions to allow you to get access to other platform device specific features, et cetera. Um, so React Native is one that allows people to reuse their TypeScript and Java and uh, JavaScript and React Knowledge. <clears throat> Notice how I said TypeScript and Java by accident because they look so similar at times. Um, <laughs> Another, another one is Flutter. 
um, Flutter, you know, by Google, and that is um, uses a language called Dart. Um, and again, it's like React and Swift and others where it's like, hey, a declarative component-oriented framework. You're not using XML, you're not using HTML or CSS to um, build your, your uh, view hierarchy um, for your app. But Flut Flutter goes even a little bit step further saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to compile natively and build natively, but our rendering engine is our own custom rendering engine we wrote in that native platform. So instead of like React saying, I'm still taking JavaScript, CSS, HTML, and rendering that, Flutter is like, because um, React Native actually uses like iOS primitives to render and, you know, on iOS and Android primitives on Android. Flutter says, we are taking care of rendering ourselves. We're not using iOS or Android. So they have full control over the look and feel. So what, that, what that's great is that they can easily target multiple platforms with the same set of code because they're responsible for rendering. The downside is the, the, the Flutter team and community has to stay up on all the changes on iOS and Android to constantly build things that render with a native look and feel on each of those platforms. So they're, you know, different strokes for different folks. They take different, different approaches, but it's interesting. So now you have a native app um, that you can run cr cross-platform. Um, another part of that hybrid, you know, the cross-platform thing is Kotlin multi-mobile platform where it's saying, you know, I've talked about kind of going from a web page to a native app and, and the shades in between. Kotlin platform is saying, multi-platform is saying, we're going to stay native. This is not web-based, but hey, a lot of back-end logic, a lot of the logic to actually drive your app can be shared between both iOS and Android. So Kotlin multi-platform is you write your, your business logic and, you know, I guess driving logic in, in Kotlin, and then both your iOS and your Android apps use that logic. And then you're still building the UI, the UX in Kotlin or Swift. So that part of it's native, but it's reusing business logic. And we've had several clients that have successfully used um, Kotlin multi-platform for large teams. Um, and generally what I've heard is um, that has gone well. So that seems to be a viable technology to share business logic across both um, types of platforms. Um, so I've talked a lot about mobile, you know, and I want to switch the conversation to desktop a little bit, you know, and I started off with Java Swing being that cross-platform desktop technology back in the day. And then later on, Swing became Java FX. Um, and I still have, you know, I, I don't know what the adoption rate for Java FX is. I still hear about Swing more than FX, but they're essentially similar, except that FX allows you to use CSS as well. And they have their own XML-based definition platform that looks ugly. Um, but both are windowing toolkits that you can run on Mac, Linux, or um, Windows. Uh, so that, I, you know, that's on the kind of a Java-based desktop side. Um, There's several technologies on the desktop, uh, one being PWA. So your, P your PWA can be built um, to run on a browser, like I said, and that browser can be a desktop browser. So based off mobile responsive frameworks, your, your PWA can be installable and can look nice on a desktop versus mobile. So that's definitely a viable approach and you can still do the caching, still do index DB, local storage, those kind of things. Um, those are viable technologies as well. Another option, you know, Ken mentioned earlier in, in the news links was um, Electron and I guess Tauri. I haven't looked in Tauri at all, so I can't really speak about that. But Electron is uh, Chromium-based, so Chromium WebKit. Chromium is, is the actual browser technology code that runs behind the scenes for Chrome and Safari, for example. Um, and for those that don't know, Chrome and Safari share a lot of code now because of WebKit, like a mm -hmm. math code. Um, WebKit drives a lot of browsers out there. Um, so Electron says, hey, 
Um, I'm going to give you a main process to run <coughs> JavaScript code in, node code, um, and then rendering processes that are Chromium. You know, think of them as tabs, but they're Chromium pro processes that can render HTML, JavaScript, CSS. <coughs> Excuse me. So you can build a you can you can use React, you can use Angular, you can use Bootstrap. You, you know, you can use something. You can use an SPA technology or just CSS framework to render your views. The views have an ability to talk back to the main main node process, um, and they can communicate through message passing with each other. So you can, and that app now can run on the desktop. Um, so you can use your web technologies to render a desktop app that is less sandbox than a browser app. So you can access disk, you can write to disk, you can access the network, you can kick off a node process in the background and you know, run an HTTP server on the side. Um, things like the Slack desktop client. Um, mm -hmm. I think Ken mentioned Visual Studio Code, where they, yeah. right? Um, use Electron. And there's, I think there's other notable examples out there, but I can't remember off the top of my head if you remember any, Ken. Yeah, a lot of the GraphQL tools, for example, like when they you install, I forget what they're called anymore, but uh, a lot of those are, are are definitely written in Electron. There's a lot of just general, like, you know, programming interface tools that you kick off that, that are I'm I'm thinking maybe what's the um, Postman Electron or is that I just was say Postman? Plug Postman that, okay. Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah, I can't get it to bring up the JavaScript console. So, but Postman might be as well. So, a lot of those tools uh, are generally developed with Electron as a shell, um, just because it makes it easier for them to use one language for the front end and the quote unquote back end. Uh, I don't want to quote Postman though. I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't know for sure either. Because I know it I mean, feels I, like it. You know. Um, so that can run on you know Mac on Windows um, and Linux, I believe. Um, so there now you have a a kind of a cross platform de desktop. Oh, app. go ahead. I'm going to break in here. The one way you can tell in a lot of these tools is that in the View menu. There's a developer menu, which is the Chrome developer tools menu. And Postman has that you can say show dev tools. And guess what it is? It's Chrome dev tools. So um, I was looking at Postman. I fired up and I can go into the dev tools for uh, for Postman itself. Even look at the, the DOM of the whole front end. So, yeah. 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 It's pretty Absolutely. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, so you can run these across different desktop OSs. You can mm -hmm. reuse the same set of technologies, you know, JavaScript, essentially in Node. Um, there are differences when you're packaging and releasing these in the Electron app, you do have to take into account the platform that is going to be installed on. And there are differences there in gotchas um, that I only know the surface level of because I haven't done too much with it yet. But that part is, that's where maybe some of the abstractions get leaky. You do have to take the, plat the specific platform into consideration when packaging and installing these. File paths and things like that, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I already mentioned Swing. And just think back in the day, in general, like I was saying, like at, at the end of the day, everything you do on a computer is graphics is rendering something to a screen and something is capturing input. Everything can boil down to that, no matter what you're doing. All of these technologies at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty wild to think about it. They render something to the screen and capture input. So it's turtles all the way down, right? It's, it's all the same. They all ultimately compile down to the same exact thing, conceptually speaking, right? Um, when you're looking at the pixels. So... Even I, you know, I, 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 in this category, if you want to take it holistically, I, I, I consider VNC, X Windows, RDP. Um, mm -hmm. These are interesting things to consider as well when you're thinking about your solution space. Um, each one of them is valid for different use cases. RDP, for example, you may find that you know I have invested a lot in a in a Microsoft Windows specific application and too much time and energy and team and so, and it makes no sense to port all that over. 
well, okay, if I'm still running on a desktop somewhere else or even on a tablet, um, you can use things like RDP and remoting protocols to essentially you're pushing pixels over a network, right? In some cases, it's raw pixels. In other cases, it's the primitives that draw that are redrawing somewhere. But in either case, you're pushing now over a network. Um, it, your UI is basically be delivering over to that like a browser. Um, so, um, though you know, there's there's definitely use cases where RDP or VNC are perfectly reasonable and a much better lower cost investment than rewriting an application. Um, uh, I've used that many times in in many cases, and um, and I, I know Ken has as well. Yeah, you know the the whole thing about like Amazon Workspaces, for example, it has a place. Um, it's like, you know, you have shared remote desktops into separate virtual machines per user and they could use any browser or anything that can run the, the, uh, Amazon workspaces client. It's pushing pixel, you know, just like VNC would it's, it's got its own little kind of screen drawing primitives to do that. And you're interacting with a VM in the safe and secure way. So if you got legacy applications, you know, you get your SAP desktop apps or whatever the heck they are for certain things you can't migrate, but you need to share it across to something else. That's certainly a potential solution, right? So yeah. just to consider what you need to get done and what the tools are that you have and what capabilities your clients have. And as you said, pick your poison, <laughs> I think was the term. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, it's, as with many things, Unix, Linux, right? They they innovated a lot of things a long time ago that people don't realize that like, yeah. oh, hey, Unix had that a long time ago. Actually, when you get into the 70s, you know, X Windows, right? I mean, uh, to me, X Windows is a technology that is way ahead of its time. Oh, when yeah. you think about the client server architecture and delivering a UI to any terminal that you're sitting at from a server. I mean, that's kind of mind blowing. It is really wild if you think about it. I mean, there, there's, I found... I'll try to find it in here. I'll give it to Becca to post. I found the very, very first manual for Unix. It's like from 1970. And it talks about the shell and bash and expressions. I'm like, oh, my God. It's it's one year younger than I am, and I'm 54. So, <laughs> and Lisp is from 1950-something, yeah. right? So, I mean, you know, you close your people. You're working on 50, 70-year-old code. <laughs> and then, you know, to take, take that. Take this one step further before I get off my, you know, get get off my soapbox or whatever. But like, so to take this even a little bit further, you can render to an invisible frame buffer in a headless mode. So you now your 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 app is not even visible, but it's used for testing purposes. Yeah. So for like Selenium testing or Cypress, or whatever, you know, rendering something headless allows it to run much faster and run through a, a suite of suite of tests that a human doesn't need to look at the screen. It just needs to a, a program in an automated fashion needs to be able to locate and interact with elements. Um, now you can do that without even having it display on, on, on an actual uh, monitor. So there's, I think the moral of the story here is like, there's a lot of ways to, to push your UI locally or over a network. And there's many different form factors and a plethora of ways to do that today, whether that's swing or electron or PWAs, um, or remote desktoping into something, um, et cetera. So kind of, I would say there's a lot of options out there. Don't constrain yourself. First, figure out what, if when you're thinking about building a new product or new app is like, what do your users need? What do most of your users need? How, how do they need to interact with this? What do they use? Like collect all that information. Don't worry about, well, can I do this or not do this? Well, we, because, you know, let's, let's make a product decision based off of a technology selection, either already made, you know, divorced from the, the product idea 
or something because you're worried that you're not going to be able to implement it. First, just think about the requirements. Step one, there's a lot of technologies out there to meet these different requirements. Um, you may not be able to get everything you want on any one of these things, but if you can get most of the way there, that's good. And then take a look at which technologies support most of my requirements and that are my users are going to be happy with. And try to do as much paper wireframe prototyping as you can. That's really valuable. Do that upfront to understand what your users need before you even write a line of code. Now, any one of these things you could do um, for some rapid prototyping. So that doesn't hurt to write some code for a rapid prototype. Um, but make sure you know what questions you're trying to answer in your prototype. If they're about the business logic, any one of these things can work. If it's about the interaction on the screen, well, then actually how things get rendered and on what they get rendered on is going to be more important than the backend logic. So you want to pick something as close to as representative as what the user is going to use in the real world. So um, we're going to have a lot more about this going forward. Um, I think it's amazing the number of options that are available and scary um, available to us these days. Yeah, it'll be good. I, I, I kind of like, so, so you kind of laid out the, the universe and then we're going to zoom into some of the planets and show some of these examples. Yeah. I think that'll be really good to, to just kind of illustrate some, like here's a, you know, here's, here's what a native application might look like and have issues with and, and work well in. And here's what an electron app does and, you know, what its benefits are and things like that. We could spend some time in each one of these areas. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Let me just say, there friggin' refrigerators have screens now. So, <laughs> Not mine. Mine doesn't either. Mine uh, is dense and <laughs> a broken ice machine. Hey, yeah. but someday I'm going to have one like that. I'm going to tell it, make my food for me, and it's going to do it. So, ostensibly, you can be building apps. And, you know, I think go back to an earlier point about just the proliferation of devices and IoT. Um, an, another, another thing I want to mention is... Um, we're getting more and more devices that can interact with human beings and that have screens, you know, toasters, refrigerator, whatever, whatnot. So yeah. the point is that your code may run in a lot of places that you may not expect it to run or, you know, flip it around is you want your code to run in a lot of places because people can access things many different ways now. So, mm -hmm. you know, beyond just thinking of how, how your code is going to run, where it's going to run, um, you have to start thinking about how do you remotely manage this fleet of devices? How do you push updates to them? How do you install software on them? That's like, to me, another, uh, another big problem that our clients and other people we talked to like face is like, okay, I, I have something that's going to run on hundreds of devices. How do I push updates when something goes wrong? Or how do I fix something? How do I know what's happening? Um, that's kind of the, to me, the pros and cons of IOT. The pro is I can do a lot. The con is everything needs a freaking update now. It's like, you know, one day someone had mentioned their, their oven, or something had you know needed an update yeah. you know had to connect to wi-fi it's like oh my god really i'm gonna you know it's just crazy just to like get it started i thought like you know just to, yeah. to get it going you need an internet connection like <sighs> there's a use case they need to work on you know yeah well, oh, thanks well. for giving me the floor for a little bit <laughs> i will see the floor back all right so a uh, couple things so yes we will continue this conversation this this uh, kind of like ui debate and discussion as we go along over the next couple months. Uh, remember that uh, Philly Emerging Tech is coming up April 11th and 12th. The early bird is still in effect until March 15th. It's going to be a great show. Uh, and again, partially in person, up to 150 tickets. Hopefully you can get yours if you want to go soon uh, and lock it in. And again, it's down at the Philadelphia Science uh, Center uh, down near Drexel University. Uh, it's in University of Penn. So it's a, it's a nice area. Uh, and a uh, good place to go see a lot of really interesting people talk about stuff. Um, so that's that. 
And, you know, hey, if you have any feedback for us, you can uh, either email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com or you can tweet at our still operating Twitter at at techcast. Uh, We still have that there. Uh, And, you know, and you can comment on the YouTube uh, sessions as well. Uh, Go ahead and add your comments there and we'll take a look at those. All right. So until the next time, I'm Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. And we will see you soon. Take care, everyone.